we have years now worth of polling that shows that rural people actually agree with progressives on issues on immigration and healthcare and clean energy and on schools, almost everything that you can think of, we actually have strong agreement on issues. The problem is that they don't think that Democrats have their back when you ask who is out there fighting for me. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today is Sarah Janes, Executive Director of the Rural Democracy Initiative, a funding collaborative that's working to build progressive capacity in rural parts of the country. Sarah is a veteran progressive leader, organizer, and fundraiser who previously ran the Washington Progress Alliance for 13 years, the group in the center of the progressive ecosystem in Washington state. So there aren't many who know more about building progressive capacity. I spoke with Sarah about her history and why she's moved to tackle the political problems progressives are having in rural areas. So after a quick word from our sponsor, my interview with Sarah Janes of the Rural Democracy Initiative. This episode is brought to you by Graphicacy. Graphicacy is an analytic design firm that can help you advance the mission of your organization using your own real data and information. They are 21st century visual communicators who create interactive graphics, motion graphics, and data visualizations. You can find Graphicacy at graphicacy.com. That is G-R-A-P-H-I-C-A-C-Y.com. With Graphicacy's help, you can visualize a better world. Sarah, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Sure. I'm Sarah Janes, and I'm the executive director of the Rural Democracy Initiative. And the Rural Democracy Initiative is a funding collaborative that's working to build progressive capacity in small towns and small cities and rural parts of the country. And I've been here for the past two years, since summer of 2019, and really kind of helped start up and build out the organization. And prior to that, I was the executive director of the Washington Progress Alliance, which is the state's progressive donor table. Prior to that, I was an organizer and campaigner working mostly on climate and low-wage worker issues in Washington State. That's where I'm from. Where did you grow up in Washington State? I grew up in a, a small town called Paulsbo, uh, which is uh, across the Puget Sound from Seattle. That's like a small Norwegian fishing village. And then my family moved to Port Townsend, which is another small town out on the Olympic Peninsula of Washington State. So small town, Western Washington. Haven't been there, but it sounds pretty. It's extraordinarily beautiful, but also very conservative. And um, it's actually where I got involved in political action was growing up in Paulsbo, where the president of the school board um, 
she ended up running for governor as kind of the pre-Trump, but the same kind of, you know, crazy right winger. She was working to ban multicultural education in our schools so we could only learn history from the perspective of the white European settlers, even though, you know, a lot of our school drew in from the Suquamish Indian Reservation And as an 11-year-old, that just seemed totally crazy to me. So I got involved in school politics when, you know, 40 years ago when I was 11 and uh, have pretty much stayed involved since. And my my family doctor actually was the author of the anti-abortion initiative that was on the ballot uh, statewide in Washington state. So it was was an interesting place to grow up that gave me a lot of uh, opportunity to practice political conflict. I know a little bit about small towns. Right. Yeah. Um, I saw that you went off to Brown. How was that? What did you study there? I ended up studying environmental studies. I originally wanted to study international relations and kind of international development, but I was studying in Kenya and I was studying environmental science there. And it was in the early nineties when they were, there was all the old growth forest wars happening in, in the Northwest. And I thought, what am I doing trying to save the environment in Africa when in my own backyard, literally where I grew up with people that I know is one of the most important environmental issues of our time. So I came back to Brown, switched my major to environmental studies, studied activism. And then as soon as I could, got out here and started working on those issues on forest issues is where I got my start. Is that when people were sort of sitting in trees to stop them from being cut down as direct action, things like that? Yep. So that was kind of my, my, my first job was as a kind of liaison between the, the tree sitters and then kind of the mainstream environmental community and kind of being a negotiator between the two sides. What did you learn from that fight? Well, it was a long time ago. <laughs> as a young person, you know, more, more of a tree sitter myself, you know, that was kind of where I, uh, you know, thought that the direct action was what was necessary. One of the main things that I learned from that fight was advocacy organizing, you know, in addition to the kind of direct action organizing, learning how to be an advocate. And we actually had, you know, successes in that fight and were able to protect a lot of the old growth forests. And so that was kind of my bridge then into actually doing more um, organizing of people for political power building. And then I transitioned actually shortly after that into electoral action. I worked for the Washington affiliate of the League of Conservation Voters and built out their political program. Are those old forests still standing that you were fighting for? I mean, not all of them, but we definitely were able to protect. I mean, there's, there's still unbelievable old growth forests in, on the Olympic Peninsula. I, I got to go go see that. I, I just I'm happiest in the woods, especially something that has is full of big trees. I love Those that. woods will blow your mind. <laughs> yeah. You were there for quite a while at Washington Conservation Voters and then stayed in the environmental space beyond that. Right. How are you growing in your skills and your interests during that time? I think for me, my draw towards towards environmental activism came from, you know, growing up on a farm <laughs> in the woods, on the Hood Canal, and just having, you know, so much experience with nature. And our family didn't have a lot of money. 
And the only thing that we could do to have fun really as a family was go camping and hiking and things that, you know, were like a lot of low income rural people, you know, what you do is you go to the woods in order to you know, have a good time as a family. So that's kind of where my environmentalism came from. And I wanted to protect it. And I think in that time, I moved from just loving nature and wanting to protect it to actually loving the puzzle of how to make change. And that's really what's kept me in politics. I mean, I've I've been doing this work for 30 years now, and I love it, even though it's incredibly discouraging for a lot of people. But the thing that makes it so rewarding, in addition to winning, you know, I've, I've won a lot of things, is that it's a really complicated puzzle that every time you put a piece in the puzzle, then the rest of the puzzle changes. And so you never stop trying to, to figure out the puzzle. And the more you know, actually, the more complicated it gets. You can just go so many layers deep into it. During that time, that was what I was learning is those, you know, kind of simple basic skills actually could, you could actually learn for a lifetime and get better and better. I think the other thing that I was doing in that time was I I built out our chapter program. So it it was in, in Washington state and we built 20 county level chapters all over the state. And it's when I really started to learn about rural organizing. And at that time, there was no internet, there was no email, there was nothing like that. So you had to literally call people on the phone and look up their address on a map and drive out there and bring other people in person into a meeting to be able to organize and you know, go out and knock on people's doors. And so you know, learning those skills of how to organize a, a community around a set of important issues and politics together in you know some very far-flung parts of the the state. So I draw on that in my current job. I think about that all the time, all those um, meetings that I had in you know, people's homes out in Chelan County or um, Clark County or um, Clallam County in, in Washington state. I think there was a point which a lot of environmental organizations and people who are environmentally inclined start to really notice the climate change problem and get focused on that. When did that happen for you and why? I studied environmental studies in in college. And so I was very attuned to the climate change problem, you know, from 1990 on. But when I decided that that's what I wanted to dedicate my life to was probably when my um, first kid was born and I took some time off in um, 2001. And when I decided to come back into the workforce and you know, continue to focus on activism, I decided the only thing I wanted to work on was climate. So I basically went to the, the climate organization in the Northwest called Climate Solutions. And I, I went to the person I knew there and said, you just you have to give me a job. I'll like literally do anything. Uh, so I came on, I did a mix of you know campaigns and development. I raised my own salary just to be able to work on climate. So that's 2001. Did that feel like you were making a dent with your work there? Absolutely. I mean, um, Climate Solutions is um, one of the, the winningest climate organizations in the country. We just passed, the, I think, the best clean energy legislation in, in the country in the last legislative session. We passed clean cars legislation, renewable fuel standard, renewable electricity standard when I was there as the campaign director. So it was actually just, it was a heyday for for winning on climate. And I mean, I know 
that we're losing globally, but we have been able to be a leader in, in, the, in the country and in, in, in the world here in the Northwest. It feels good to be able to make as much difference as I can possibly make as one person in that role. You mentioned earlier that you were running the Washington State donor table. What was the step to that? How does that fit into politics in your state? So this was in 2006, and nothing like that really existed. But I had been working at that point, I'd been working for 15 years in politics and environmental activism and low-wage worker advocacy. And when you're doing that work, there's a set of inefficiencies (laughs) that are nobody's job to fix. So at the time, we were literally taking paper, you know, mailing lists and, you know, sticking labels on envelopes in order to reach people, or we were calling voters on a printed out spreadsheet and marking it by hand and then throwing it away when we were done. We weren't, there were, there weren't systems there to actually be more efficient about how we were building power and, you know, tracking supporters. We didn't have a way to connect with our base digitally at that point, even though, you know, email and websites existed at that point. Um, But it wasn't my job working at Climate Solutions or working at the conservation voters to solve that problem, right? I just had to exist in this incredibly inefficient environment. And there wasn't anybody whose job it was to make it more powerful and connected and efficient. And at a certain point, I got tired of that. (laughs) Like, oh my God, like somebody should solve this problem, but nobody's paid to do it. So about that time, it was actually, you know, right after John Kerry lost the election to to Bush. And we were like, what the what the hell? What is wrong with the progressive movement? Right. And and one of the diagnoses were that we were actually, you know, not connected, not investing in infrastructure, not being efficient enough. And a set of donors in Washington State basically commissioned a report that outlined this. And I read it and I thought, oh my God, I was not inclined to think that actually donors would have the answer. I was dismissive of them as being experts, but they actually had really clearly articulated a problem and a solution, and they were looking for somebody to run their organization. So I put my hat in the ring, thinking I would do it for, you know, a couple years, right? My heart is really in the the organizing and activism, but I thought, well, you know, somebody actually needs to solve for these problems, and these people are giving me an opportunity to put in that next piece of the puzzle, and I'll take it. And uh, I couldn't believe when 13 years later, I was still <laughs> working there. But the amazing thing was that we founded about, you know, a dozen new organizations in the state that could actually tackle all of those pieces of the problem. So it was a very creative and generative time. And we built a lot of the infrastructure in Washington state that has led to us kind of remaining a blue state and being a progressive leader. A lot of people don't think or know this about Washington, but when the right was really targeting Wisconsin and some of the Midwest states to, you know, flip them red and dismantle their labor movements, we were the next state in the crosshairs. We, we had had 50-50 elections. You know, our governor, our Democratic governor won by like 126 votes. I mean, it was the closest gubernatorial election ever. And we could easily at that point have had, you know, a, a full Republican legislature and governorship and so we were actually at you know significant risk. And I think building out the 
progressive infrastructure. And then we also are lucky that we've had a visionary Democratic Party chair for the last number of years also, I think has really put Washington in the state of being, knock on wood, but a relatively, you know, safe Democratic state and also a real progressive beacon. Yeah, I've talked to people who have been part of building that infrastructure in states like Colorado or Minnesota that really could have either switched to become Democratic or kind of saved themselves as opposed to Wisconsin that really changed a lot and some of the others that moved that way. And it, you know, it's hard to know how much to credit the creation of all these progressive organizations, but it's got to make a difference in a hundred vote election and some of the the tight races and, and, and all these things matter. If you're creating 13 organizations, can you give a sketch of sort of what they were and how they fit in and how they make a difference? Yeah. I mean, the first thing that we needed to do was to have a place where the, you know, both the issue and civic engagement organizations could come together and plan for how to engage voters around the issues that were important to them and actually talk to each other and make a plan that was, you know, connected. And that didn't exist. And on the political side, the political action organizations, the Planned Parenthoods and the conservation voters and the you know, labor unions and the LGBTQ organizations that were involved in politics, they also didn't have a space to come together and plan their political action together. So those were the first two things that we created was just these two, what they call tables, where the groups come together and they plan. What are they um, called? It's a, uh, in Washington State, it's called the Win-Win Network. The real asset that those tables had was a voter database that they could share. So that was that piece that that had been missing before that drove me crazy was an actual like interactive online voter database where every single campaign, if you're you know running the gay marriage initiative or if you're running the um, you know renewable electricity campaign, that you're all using a database together that you're constantly enriching and en- enhancing and you don't lose the information at the end of the campaign. So that was the asset that drew the groups to the table and what enabled people to work together. I mean, that is fundamental. And without that, we could not win at the level that we are today. And I know it seems like um, obvious and like, of course, everybody has that, but they don't actually have that in some states where these tables don't exist. And that's the van system, right? Yeah. It's kind of one of the, one of the intersections that we have because that became part of a company that I had started. And it's fun to see where all of its tentacles were around the country. When we started the Washington Progress Alliance, I mean, we were one of the first, the, the, the first three donor alliances, progressive donor alliances that started at the state level were in Colorado, Minnesota, and Washington. So we were really just kind of creating it from scratch. There was no playbook that existed and so it was a, it was an interesting time of just trying to figure out these pieces and then figure out how to build them. What other pieces besides the win-win stuff? Well, the other really foundational piece was to have a digital communications hub. At the time, you know, it was all about email, which this was 2006, so it wasn't, you know, kind of Facebook and Instagram and all the other ways that we communicate with folks. But when we were running that renewable electricity ballot initiative, 
a couple weeks before the election, we were down like 48 to 52. You know, we weren't going to win. And when we looked at the polling, the places where we were losing were with young people and in Seattle, where you would think that people would be pro-environment. And the problem was they didn't know that this was actually a progressive initiative. We'd had a lot of, you know, kind of right-wing ballot initiatives, and they thought that it was confusingly worded, and they thought this was something that was being advanced by the other side. And so we just needed to communicate to our base that this is something they should vote for, and nothing existed to do that at the time. And so we had to spend a million dollars on TV advertising to just tell people who should already be with us, this is something that they should vote for. And I thought, never again should we be in that position, right? This is, you know, 2006. We should actually have all these people on an email list and be able to push a button and say, hey, vote for this thing that you are for. And so that's, you know, what we built. It's called Fuse Washington and is part of the Progress Now network. And they built out, you know, a, a giant action list. And of course, it's evolved now to be social media in addition to email. And we now have the ability to communicate with literally hundreds of thousands. Often we'll be able to communicate with 25% of the voters in a particular targeted legislative district through FUSE at election time and year round, that's a really important piece of the infrastructure that needed to be created that really is driving, I think, you know, Washington State's communications hub is one of the strongest, if not the strongest in the country. To what degree were you collaborating with donor tables and analogous organizing in other states during this time? As much as we could, and like I said, there were only a few that existed at that point, but we managed to find each other and come together in these scrappy little conferences to talk with each other. My coworker now that, that I work with at the Rural Democracy Initiative, Bobby Clark, he the place that I first met him was actually when we were creating Fuse and they had started Progress Now in Colorado and we heard about it and asked if they would come out and basically help us, you know, figure out how to start it here and lend their backend technology platform, et cetera. When you kind of look now at the progressive infrastructure in your state, in Washington, do you think there's still gaps or do you think it's pretty well covered? The next places that the infrastructure needed to be built was in constituency organizing. So we helped to found an organization called the Washington Bus that uh, organizes young people you know, in high schools and college campuses. And then we actually funded a group called One America, which is an immigrant rights and organizing group that actually was founded by now Congresswoman Pramila Jayapal. We've also supported organizing in, you know, Native American communities, et cetera. So, so making sure that you also, you also need that infrastructure that is organizing particular base constituencies. That sort of infrastructure, everything that I just mentioned, but in particular, you know, some of those constituency organizing groups, they need, you know, kind of constant support to be able to maintain their strengths. And so I would say the the, the strength and presence of those organizations ebbs and flows. So I don't think we have all the infrastructure that we need by any means, and it's not as built out as it needs to be, but most of the pieces are there. The other side of that job, it seems to me, would be the relationship with the donors. 
the cultivation of them, finding new ones, keeping the the flow of necessary dollars to fund all of this. Is that solid there? Is it take a tremendous amount of work? Is it growing? What's What's the status of that side of things? I've moved on from the Washington Progress Alliance, so I'm not exactly sure how many donors continue to be engaged and kind of how strong that network is. But I would say that it's harder in some places than other places. It's you know relatively easy to bump into progressive donors in Seattle. I'd say there's a lot of people with money who have progressive inclinations who are well networked with each other. It's actually you know bit surprisingly uh, been one of the most fun parts of my my job is for me. I have never thought of it as fundraising. As an organizer, I think of it as actually donor organizing and giving people who have money an opportunity to you know in, invest their time, their money, their talent in the things that they actually care about. And so you're actually giving them this incredible gift of being part of something where they can make a difference. And so I, I actually really enjoyed that. And a lot of the donors who were involved through the Progress Alliance, um, for example, they were very involved in passing the recent capital gains tax in Washington state, they were in TV ads, they went and testified in the legislature saying, look, I make all my money on capital gains, it's not being taxed right now, please, you know, go ahead and tax me, that would be the the right thing to do to be able to invest in our state. And so giving people opportunities for activism, in addition to donation has always been really fun for me. Yeah, it's always been pointed to as an advantage for Republicans in their finding donors and organizing that the self-interest of people like that might be on the other side of an issue like capital gains. And it's kind of remarkable actually to have people acting in the public interest like that on our side, isn't it? It's one of those things that, um, that I always hate is when people get frustrated that voters aren't acting in their own interest, right? That's a common phrase that you hear. It's like, I don't know why these voters aren't, you know, voting in their own interest. What's the matter with Kansas? Yeah. <laughs> right. And it's like, well, people's interests are broad, right? But people's inter- interests extend beyond just, you know, maybe a transactional, you know, financial interest. Wealthy people have an interest in a thriving school system and in a climate that is healthy and in, you know, mountains that they can ski in, right? There's all kinds of interests that you might have that aren't necessarily about your tax bill. I know this was all your ancient history and I appreciate you being willing to talk about it. I know that you've now moved on to the rural democracy world. What's the sort of origin story for that? How do you decide to leave a job that you've been in for so long and do a new thing? And why this? It was hard for me to leave my job. It was a really wonderful community that in many ways felt like family. But in 2018, you know, with Trump in office and starting to think, you know, not be able to bear it anymore, right? I, I've been working in politics for 30 years. I, I coach donor tables all over the country, about 10 other donor tables around the country, and knew a lot about politics in other states. And I thought there's got to be a way that I can take what I know and be able to translate it into making a difference in 2020. I wanted to put myself in a position I wake up every day and think, what is the way that I can make the most difference today, every day? Because 
I'm making a choice. I'm, I'm making sacrifices to spend time on work. And I want to make sure that I'm having the biggest impact I can. And at a certain point, I realized the place where I could have the biggest impact was working on a nationwide effort, particularly in 2020. So I wanted to put myself in that position. The other thing is that I'd spent the past decade of my career working you know, primarily with young people and in communities of color, working in the you know, very diverse cities and suburbs in the state. And you know, as a middle-aged white woman, there's other people who are better positioned to do that work than me. You know, maybe 10 years ago, I was able to be more useful. But at this point, there's plenty of leaders in, in that space who actually are from those communities. And so I thought, well, where am I able to be most useful? And I thought about my experience doing rural organizing and my heritage growing up in a working class community in a small town. And I knew it was a huge gap in our movement that we were not investing the way that we need to in the more rural parts of the country. And it's a huge part of why we're struggling now on, on the progressive side. So I thought, okay, here's something where I can, I can make a difference and it's something that's unique to me. And also being able to bring the funding together, you know, I knew how to create a funding alliance. I was confident that uh, once I understood the the value proposition and the solution that I could bring funders to the table. So that was my transition. And it was challenging because for a time there in 2019, I was doing three different jobs at once while I was trying to hand off everything. But it's been a huge amount of fun, incredibly rewarding. So was it your idea? Well, it was a bunch of people had the idea at the same time. So I, I actually came into an organization that pre-existed called the Heartland Fund, which was a 501c3 donor collaborative that was focused in the Midwest exclusively. And it was focused on primarily environmental justice issues in the Midwest. The theory was that, you know, we need to draw more donor resources into grassroots work in the heartland of the country. And that had been a, a real gap. Um, so that that organization already existed. And of course, a lot of the heartland is rural. So they, they did have a rural focus. And then there were a set of funders who were agitating through the state donor tables, which is the community that I was in, saying, hey, we need to pay more attention to rural states. There's a donor from West Virginia named Will Carter, who is very instrumental in that conversation. And we need to be investing in the rural parts of battleground states uh, like Wisconsin and Michigan, for example. And so I was in that community of folks as well. And in those conversations, it became clear by the middle of 2019 that if we were going to bring together these streams of conversation, that there needed to be somebody who was actually staffing it and as I was you know, looking for a way to make a contribution, I said, hey, if I, if I raise my salary for the year, can I come up over to the Heartland Fund and actually build out this work at the Heartland Fund and expand to include rural America in a greater number of states and also build out a C4 capacity? And uh, it all just came together where I was able to, to bring those threads. So I don't take credit for founding it, but I think I was the catalytic staff person who enabled it to grow. Who are the key funders? Well, there are a number of individual donors that I knew through my work in Washington State who shared this interest in 
rural investment who were able to, you know, kind of put up some seed funding. Um, and then the Heartland Fund had a set of funders, um, foundation funders who were really engaged creatively. So, um, you know, folks at the Wallace Global Fund and Open Society Foundation and Carnegie uh, Corporation came in. So they're, they were, you know, focused on the issue-based and civic engagement work um, who really were able to fund out that piece. And then when we moved into the C4 world, we also partnered with um, a set of national donors through the Democracy Alliance. I talked this morning to Scott Nielsen, who I think was a donor advisor who was part of getting Heartland going, and he said nice things about you. Did you interact with him in this process? Yeah, and they weren't necessarily funders, but Scott was a founding driver of the organization, at, particularly at Heartland Fund, and he shared the vision of moving it to be a more nationwide and to be able to expand to have a political focus in addition to the civic engagement focus. It feels like there's been a really large drop in democratic voting across the country in rural areas and move to the Republican side that tracks some of the appeals and positions and style of Trump for some reason, as well as just other trends in society more generally. How do you understand what's been happening there and what can arrest it and maybe pull it back? Although pulled back a little bit with Biden, but not a huge amount. Yeah, there's there's so many dynamics, but I would say um, the first thing that I want to to get across is that rural voters are extremely swingy. They're the swingiest kind of voter segment that we can find demographically or geographically since 2012. Um, they've swung, you know, 8%, you know, in both directions, which is more than, you know, suburban or women or young people, et cetera. And most people don't know that. They definitely moved, you know, significantly towards Trump, and then they moved the other direction in 2018, and then you know, kind of moved slightly back down in in 2020. So I think it's it's a voter segment that is, you know, very much undecided and kind of up for grabs and looking for somebody to really offer a solution to some of the struggles that they're facing. So I mean, that's the first thing. The second thing is that you know, people in rural communities are really struggling, and neither party is really speaking to solutions to some of the dynamics there. But I think Trump spoke to the populism and spoke to directly to working people, unfortunately, that he he was a messenger. You know, I, I believe that the Democratic Party, you know, is the party of working people. And that should be at the very center of their, you know, of, of their brand. And unfortunately, I think the Democratic Party has moved away from that brand recently and the Republican Party has stepped in to fill that void. And it's something that needs to be you know, corrected immediately so that the brand lines up with the policies, actually, that the that, that Democrats and progressives are promoting. Those are two things. And then the third is the just massive rise in disinformation that's specifically targeting rural residents. And then the collapse of some of the mainstream media sources Folks in, in rural areas and small towns, they rely on local news 
and Facebook. Those are the two things that they rely on. And their local news has been taken over by right-wing sources in many cases or disappeared. And Facebook, as you know, has been taken over by mis- and disinformation. So I think those are a few of the dynamics. We have years now worth of polling that shows that rural people actually agree with progressives on issues, on immigration and healthcare and clean energy and on schools, almost everything that you can think of, we actually have strong agreement on issues. The problem is that they don't think that Democrats have their back. When you ask who is out there fighting for me, they think that it's Republicans who are fighting for them. That's the most of the elected leaders that they know. It's a lot of their family members and community members. And they think that those are the people who have their back. And so even when progressives and Democrats are actually fighting and passing things that they like, they actually give the credit for it to Republicans because they think those are the people who are fighting for them. So that's, I think, where the disconnect is coming in. When there's a big movement of voters and big forces at play, it's awfully hard for any entity to affect that and to effectively move things the other direction. What are the strategies that you use to fight this change and how how's it going? Through the Rural Democracy Initiative, which includes our, our you know, Heartland Fund and the Rural Victory Fund um, on the C3 and C4 sides, we now have a network of 120 groups that we work with in over 20 states around the country, you know, from Alaska to Arizona to Georgia. And so we've had the opportunity to to learn together with all these organizations. And the groups are mostly grassroots organizing and communications organizations. Some of them are national, but most of them are locally rooted, you know, in a particular part of, you know, North Carolina or a particular county in Arizona. So they're locally based organizations. It's one of the the, the best parts of, of the job is actually being able to learn together with the folks who are just trying new things because, no, you know, it's been so underinvested in, it's not like we actually knew what worked previously. The most important principle is local messengers, that people in small towns and rural communities listen to people who live in their communities and that what they, they need to hear from somebody who is speaking you know, their language, talking about the problems that they're facing there you know, hyper-locally and who, are, um, who they recognize, right? who's, a, who's a recognized person from their community. So that's the, 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 the kind of foundational principle is to keep it local. Don't have people coming in from out of town, you know, knocking on doors or advertising or, you know, whatever communications or voter persuasion that they're using is not actually going to work if it's from out of the local community. The second thing, which is related, is relational types of organizing work really well. So, for example, deep canvassing, which I don't know if you've had anyone on this podcast talking about deep canvassing. I have had, yes. It's those long form conversations where you're connecting with people about values and shared stories are the most effective way to move folks. And in fact, people get so engaged through the deep canvassing that they actually end up, you know, volunteering with the organization or coming onto staff. And it's durable movement, right? Even in one conversation, you can move people, you know, eight percentage points on an issue and it stays with them because you've made a human connection. And in a lot of cases, you know, folks don't 
have people coming and talking to them about, you know, civic and political issues. So that's another thing that works. And then the other type of relational organizing you can do um, peer to peer where, you know, you actually reach out to people in your network and have an ongoing conversation with them about an issue or about politics. And, um, and, and if you have, you know, a hundred people in a community who are each reaching out to 20 people a piece, suddenly you can reach, you know, 2000 folks that way. Relational organizing is very effective in, you know, because rural communities are so highly relational. And then I would say the other thing that works really well is just using all the kind of visibility, all the media outlets available to you, even though there's been a collapse of local media, there are plenty of places that we aren't actually utilizing their full capacity. So rural radio and local papers, they're usually desperate for content. If you provide it to them, you can advertise incredibly cheaply in some of these outlets. There's a common saying in politics that yard signs don't vote, but actually in rural areas, yard signs do change votes because people know who has the sign in their yard and they're paying attention. And just even having visibility for a more progressive alternative and to know that other people out there are supporting them will actually turn more people out to vote on their behalf. So yard signs and billboards is another way that you can actually make a difference. So that's something that works. And then once you get the local uh, media coverage, you can then take that local media coverage in the small town paper and then um, use that to advertise on Facebook. So you're then getting the digital reach, but it's coming from a local source. So those are just a few ideas. I certainly, before the last election, drove out into rural Maryland, a blue state, and rural Virginia also should be a bluish state is all Trump signs or all Youngkin signs recently and very little visibility of McAuliffe or Biden, if any, in, in the rural towns that I went through. And when you look at election returns in rural counties, in just about every state, you see uh, huge margins being run up. And I think there's something in politics when you kind of get to a critical mass everybody seeming to be on the same side, people give up on that area in the other party. And it's like being a Trump supporter in my neighborhood in DC, you don't see him, right? And there probably are hardly any, and, and they're just, everyone's reinforcing each other in the urban areas and in the rural areas. Is it too late to, to get back rural America? Have we missed our opportunity? No, I mean, you know, in in Western Pennsylvania, in this last election in 2021, um, a group called Pennsylvania United uh, re- recruited and supported and, and ran 20 candidates and for, in local races for, you know, the Erie City Council and School Board and Beaver County. And they won 16 or 14 of those races. So they're winning at the local level in, in Georgia, they flipped 48 municipal races, you know, from Republican to Democrat this last cycle. And the Republicans only flipped six of them in Montana. They held on to all of their incumbents and flip seats in, you know, Missoula and Billings and Bozeman and even, you know, um, the much smaller towns. So we're actually, Um, Where people are focused and organizing, we are winning. And it's actually those local races in 
it, it's back to my local messenger point that when people have somebody locally that they know that they can turn out and support who is more progressive, then they'll vote up the ballot to the statewide candidates or the congressional district level candidates. And so that's the other thing is like, we need to be running people at the local level who are really involved in their community everywhere. We are winning. There was a significant change in democratic margins in Wisconsin and Arizona and Georgia in 2020 that were actually the margin of victory in those states. Um, There's also an increase in Pennsylvania and other places that didn't end up being the margin of victory, but still, you know, you increase the rural vote by like 50,000 votes um, in 2020. There is positive movement to look to in both 2020 and in 2021. And the thing is that we don't have to win small town and small city and rural votes in absolute terms, right? You don't have to like win the election there. What you need to do is you need to, what we call it is losing by less, which is a, um, (laughs) it might sound kind of pathetic, but actually losing by less in rural areas is incredibly powerful. If you can win back 3% of the rural vote in Ohio, which is imminently possible, you know, suddenly you're in, you know, competition and can win statewide. So that is the goal. And when you think about all the different ways that you can gain that three percentage points, 25% of rural America are Black, Indigenous, and people of color at this point uh, in the last census, right? There's a lot of rural Black voters who are not motivated at this point to turn out because they're not seeing the connection to changes in their life. And they could swing elections in many cases. Young people in rural areas in 2020, in the summer of 2020, half of them were undecided or planning to vote third party in the summer of 2020. That's, you know, 50% of rural young people were totally swingable, right? You could get 3% of them, you know, quite easily just by having a conversation and making sure that that folks who are with us were turning out to vote. So it's not that hard to do. It just takes, you know, focused resources and local infrastructure that can make it happen. I mean, given that resources, as you say, would make a difference, how much short of what we should be investing in that part of the country, are we? Well, I would say tens of millions in each battleground, probably. My biggest beef with politics in general is that we just, you know, shower electoral campaigns with resources that mostly get spent on advertising and they get spent at the very end and you get diminishing returns, right? At a certain point, you are saturated. You have done all the persuasion advertising that you can. That's where you see, you know, tens of millions of dollars that are are spent on advertising. And if you just took a small portion of that and invested in year-round organizing and communications and voter registration and mobilization and in fixing gerrymandering and making sure that you pass automatic voter registration policies, right? If, if you just invested in that piece, you would have dramatically better outcomes. And so it's always my, my goal, just like it's not, it doesn't even have to be new money. You just take some of the money that's being wasted at the end of election campaigns and move it into rural spaces. So, you know, right now, 
our, our budget at RDI, we'd like to invest $20 million in 2022. Um, but we're, we don't see, it's not like what we're able to invest is the be all and end all, right? We're matching contributions that those organizations are raising from other places. And then we're also looking to um, align our funding with other individual donors, grassroots funders, foundations. And so, you know, we're hoping that, you know, our 20 million can add up to be, you know, a hundred million total across the sector. I've gotten the sense that it's been a hard sell to invest in rural mobilization over the last decade, for sure, in our party. To what extent has that turned around and to what extent is there a lot of work yet to do to get it to where it needs to be? I agree. I mean, for decades, we've underinvested in in rural areas. We did a study of just philanthropic dollars, and I think only 7% of philanthropic dollars go into rural areas, you know, whereas they're like 20% of the population. It's been very underinvested in, but that is turning around. And I will say it's it's not really a hard sell. It requires somebody selling it, right? I mean, it's been a pretty easy sell since we have actually been able to identify high value places to invest funding for people and match donors with groups on the ground. I think they just, you know, need... Um, somebody articulating that value proposition and then who can help them make a, you know, kind of competent donation. There are a few hurdles to get over. And the first one is this idea. I mean, for years, political consultants have used rural as this kind of code word for white. So when they say rural, what they're really talking about is white voters. And that's just totally not accurate, right? I mean, there's plenty of white people who aren't rural. And, you know, there's, you know, 25% of rural people who aren't white. And they're often the most kind of dynamic and growing segment of the community. So that's one thing that we have to get over is this idea that by talking about rural, that you're somehow selling out your brothers and sisters in the movement who are, you know, not white. That's one just mental breakthrough to get through. And then the second is this idea that everybody who lives in rural areas are just, you know, lost to us. They're conservative. They're Trump voters. And that's where, you know, our our polling about issues is so important. And then also just like using your common sense, right? That like in any community, there's plenty of folks there that actually just they don't have anybody to vote for. Right. There aren't Democrats even appearing on their ballot. Right. That where they could make a difference. So um, I think it's it's those two mindsets that we are working to overcome. And then the third is actually it is different in rural areas. The tactics are different. You don't have access to internet. Sometimes you don't have access to cell service. Sometimes people don't even have addresses. A lot of the tactics are just very different. So so helping people understand the tactics is important. And then I'd say the last part is that the way that progressives who are based in urban areas talk, it sounds kind of crazy to people in small towns and rural areas. I'll just say it's not it's not a resonant language <laughs> with people in rural America. And so it takes some educating on what the terminology even means, right, that comes out of the campuses now, et cetera. Right. I mean, it. 
it doesn't make sense. And then when you when you actually learn what it means, it also doesn't sit well. So I think like that's part of it also is if we really want to be a progressive movement that's inclusive of working class people across racial demographics who live in outside of cities and even people who live in cities, to be honest, then we're going to have to actually think about the way that we are talking and we just like talk like regular people. I agree with that. When you look at the groups that you fund, who stands out as really doing great work out there? I mean, there are so many. We love the groups that we fund in Georgia, which are, I think the Georgia progressive movement is so strong and disciplined and um, aligned right now that it's really, it's pretty magical. I think virtually all the groups that we fund in in Georgia are Black-led organizations. And many of them are, you know, just the ones that everybody knows about. So like the New Georgia Project actually has a really fantastic rural program. We fund a group called the Black Male Voter Project, and they work, you know, in cities and they also work in, in rural areas very effectively. You're nodding your head. You're familiar with them, Mondale Robinson. I interviewed their leader, yeah. Yep. Yeah, is, is amazing. Um, we... Uh, we work in a very totally different part of the country. We work with the Wisconsin um, Farmers Union, who do amazing work. They are not explicitly political, but they do just brilliant work organizing farmers. They they help pass you know a number of anti gerrymandering resolutions all across um, Wisconsin. They've done, you know, fantastic organizing around saving the postal service and other, you know, just other things that are important to rural communities. And they have a great, uh, communications team there where they actually are stipending farmers to be producers of content. And then another, you know, group that we love to work with is a group called RAISE in rural Arizona. They stand for Rural Arizona Engagement. And, um, it's there in uh, Pinal County is where they started. And now they're expanding into a number of other rural counties in Arizona and started by a, a, a school teacher and a former forklift driver who both ran for state legislature in their legislative district. And they didn't win, but they made so many you know fantastic connections and learned. And they basically got together and said, let's start an organization. And they they've built from, you know, two halftime uh, co-executive directors to now an organization with dozens of full-time staff who are a real powerhouse. So for yourself, you have a, a tendency to stay a long time in jobs, which is not something I see in resumes of a lot of people actually anymore. Is this the project of the decade? Are you wearing down already? How is it affecting you personally? And what what are your aspirations in the near and far term for that? I'm a builder of things. And so I do like to like to stay and build as opposed to kind of dip in and dip out. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely planning to stick around for a while. When I thought about this stage of my career, you know, I really wanted to spend time the next decade working in the rural politics space. You know, as somebody who has recruited countless people to run for office, I've always wanted to actually run for office myself. I feel like I need to. I was wondering about that. Yeah. <laughs> about you know what works, and the office I've always wanted to run for is rural county commissioner. So, like a county commission, local office, 
in a rural county. Those are great jobs where you can have a huge amount of impact and it's can be relatively nonpartisan. So maybe at some point I'll have the opportunity to do that. But, you know, living in the heart of Seattle, um, there's not really need for that in my current location. Are there other rural organizations that are, say, national in scope that are in the rural space that ought to be known besides the ones that you fund, but ones that are more on the peer level? The group that we work most closely with is called ruralorganizing.org, and they really kind of expanded at the same time as the Rural Democracy Initiative. So we're kind of um, peers and and colleagues in, in building up our organization, and they're kind of like the communications and organizing hub for rural. They've got, you know, hundreds of thousands of engaged uh, people in their network and do amazing work. And then they there's um, now a new PAC that was started by J.D. Schulten, who ran for office in, in rural Iowa, and it's called ruralvote.org. And um, we're excited to be working closely with him as well. Um, I'd say those are our our closest partners. And then there are some organizations that are working in particular regions, like there's a group called the Rural and Plain States Project that's working mostly in the Montanas and Dakotas um, that we partner closely with as well. And then, you know, we're actually in the process of building up an advisory board um, at RDI of kind of your prominent rural thought leaders a diverse group of rural thought leaders that can advise our work moving forward. We've been really in organizational startup mode. So we're kind of just having a moment to take a breath and do that work. The other group that we work really closely with is People's Action. They, you know, work across geography and, you know, they're a multiracial power building organization, but they have some amazing um, rurally rooted state-based organizations in, you know, North Carolina, New Hampshire and Michigan and, Indiana and other places. Well, it always gives me some hope to hear about the work going on in areas like this. And I hope that you guys have a lot of impact yourself and, and those partners included. Is there a question that I didn't ask you that I should have? I don't think so. I've got a chance to share a lot. I, I will say on the hope front that, um, you know, the thing that's kept me going in politics for all these years, in addition to the puzzle, you know, solving the puzzle is that I love to win. I'm you know, a very competitive person. I've never been able to play sports because I'm too competitive to sports. I'm like a poor loser, right? So the place where I kind of put all of that you know, love of winning is into making change. And so I pretty much only focus in places where I can win. And so I think I do want to leave you with that optimism that we know that we can win in rural areas. And like I said, you're moving margins and that those margins are kind of wide, wide open to us. And um, so I I do want to leave people with optimism and hope. And also, I think attention to the real life consequences of people who live there as somebody who grew up in a small town, in a working class family, in a rural part of our state, that People are in life and death struggles for jobs and access to healthcare is a huge one. And, you know, struggling with 
drugs and the opioid epidemic. And so actually being able to bring this work into rural areas is not about a political game. It's about making a difference in people's lives in a way that, you know, not only impacts those communities, but can change, I think, what's possible in the country overall. I want to make sure that we ground it in the people who live there and what's going to make a difference for them, as opposed to thinking that it's some sort of like a transactional game that we are um, playing in politics. I hear that. If I have a worry right now, it's all of the smart heads in politics think we're going to face another shellacking midterm election. And that is the opportunity for the other side to really lock in the habits of voting among a lot of people in the rural space. If it's a, a wave the other way, like it tends to be in midterms when your party has in federal power. Do you have a level of optimism about 2022 or is it longer term than that? I've worked in, in politics and social change for 30 years. So I have seen the shellackings and I've also seen the incredible victories and I see how quickly they can follow each other, right? Those ebbs and flows can be very dramatic, especially in an electorate as swingy as, you know, as I'm working in. I'm not naive about the historic patterns and also the types of voter suppression and gerrymandering that have put us in a very challenging position. I am hopeful about a set of wins in places where we are disciplined and uh, have invested, like in places like Georgia, where I am actually very optimistic. We don't have like the time to be discouraged. <laughs> like there, we, we know how to win. We know where we can win. And it's it's absolutely possible. And I guess the other thing is that people are unhappy. You know, the um, people in America are not happy right now with how things are going. And they can take it out on, you know, Biden and the Democrats, or they can take it the other direction just as easily. And so it's, it's a very volatile electoral situation. And if we're actually offering people real solutions and ways to improve the things that are making people mad. And I think like what's happening with um, abortion right now is a great example of like, people are not going to take that lying down. So it both makes me want to cry, you know, in despair, but also I do believe that people are going to stand up and fight back. Well, it's really an honor to talk to you today. Anything else you want to say? No, thank you. It's great to talk to you too. It's been a lot of fun. That was Sarah Janes. Sarah is at ruraldemocracyinitiative.org. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.